fundamental difference between the sexes is that one of them can kill the other with their bare hands. A man of any size lays hands on me, he's gonna bleed out in under a minute. <clears throat> well, just so you know, I support feminism. Mostly by having body image issues. Welcome to True Detective Weekly on the Idle Thumbs Podcast Network. I am Chris Remo. I'm Sean Vanneman. And I'm Jake Rodkin. This week we are discussing the second episode of the second season of True Detective, Night Finds You. Just like last week, uh, and just like every True Detective, it's written by Nick Pizzolatto. This episode was also directed by Justin Lin, who directed last week's episode. And this is the last one he will have directed, right? This is the last this one he's at least slated to direct, right, so yeah. 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 He leaves the show along with Colin Farrell in a body bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really like that that ending, actually. What oh, you, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't think you would like it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, let, let's share overall impressions, I guess, of this episode, Sean. I thought this episode, um, I still have the sort of same criticisms of the show, but they're would, tired yeah. in terms of like its yeah, aesthetic and direction. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I found this episode to be a much more entertaining piece of fiction in that it was finally just like, okay, starting to get some like individuality out of the characters. They're being mashed together to like solve this crime. They all sort of have like, like a secret that they're keeping in there. You know like? It's like, it feels like they're all playing like that party game, like werewolf or like mafia. And that like one of you is the blank and one of you oh, is sure. the blank. So yeah. like all that stuff is totally fine. Actually, I thought they did a really good job of like, of, um, it was almost like, obviously it didn't because all these episodes are made before they air, but it felt like they took the note of, can you please just situate this place in its political standing inside well, of the certainly did greater that. <laughs> area more for me, please? And they just like, there's like, I mean, okay, fine. Here's a voiceover of the city of describing this. I think that's going to be what the show basically <laughs> that is. was really strong. So to, uh, Sh- Sean, I, I, um, your take is like really I'm glad you went first because I because I I agree with a lot of what you say and I think that um, uh, what this episode kind of did I think this epi- episode one I think none of us were completely sure how to react to it and as you say like some of some of the things that that we reacted negative negatively to in, in episode one you know continue to some respect but I think what episode two did for me is it it really declares what a completely different goal this season has exactly right. than episode one. Yeah. This basically says this is some, re- this is the season that actually should be called true detective. Mm-hmm. Like this is the pulpy, like cr- crime suffused conspiratorial political, like, you know, every, it's like modern day Chandler. Exactly. Or, yeah. That is, re- that is really what this was when is where, you know, when you watch something like, you know, I, I don't mean to, connect this again to the Maltese Falcon specifically because except for the guy in a fucking Falcon I know mask. but it was a, it's a mask not a, it's a mask not a statue right like I totally misinterpreted it last episode because it was just but a, there was that, no, like two second it, brief it, shot. it was just sitting in a car set at there decor. was no thing referenced to scale had there been like like a pickle sitting next right. to it but I possibly kind of, like a, I like, a dollar cheeseburger you but I known. like that that it was just a weird ambiguous odd piece of imagery anyway <laughs> the only reason I bring it up is because when you watch something like the Maltese Falcon uh, or a, a lot a of real falcon oh, sorry. <laughs> or a lot of uh you know sort of crime noir inflected stuff of that era um there are, there is so there are so many plot lines and double crosses and a lot of them never get resolved and a lot of them are just in the background and hard to even keep straight as you're watching it this episode i was i almost got overwhelmed by the amount of that there was in terms of all the things going on with 
the real estate dealings and some kind of like film production um, corruption and the general the um, the different investigators being sort of pitted against each other by their by the one sort of overseeing organization, mm-hmm. I guess the state organization. Well, and they're um, each like sort of of each department's political goals in this right yeah yeah case, which I there, was there really is so well, much of that going yeah, on yeah. and i have to assume that with only six episodes left already <laughs> not all of these things are going to be tidally cleaned up and so about halfway through the episode when it when they basically like on the top of all of that exposition settled into like and here we go and like here's the investigation and all three of these people are working their own angles which are partly overlapping and partly not I'm like, all right, this this is where this is like this is the point halfway through this episode where the end of the first episode, I'm like, this is what's what it's gonna be. And then I was really worried when we started off because I'm like, I'm getting so confused. Mm-hmm. I, I took lots of notes and I, I I looking back in retrospect, I'm pretty sure I get most of the threads that are going on, but um we are now in the kind of fucked up version of Buddy Copland that um that I, I am prepared to just dive into the the scenes with uh with you know Annie uh Bezaridis and um and uh Ray Ray Volcaro in the in the car were so funny because they I don't think that stuff came off like perfectly really but it was a really funny counterpoint to season 1 where where even though these the two guys in season 1 you know, uh, um, Rust and Marty are at odds with each other. They're at odds with each other in the lethal weapon way. Well, those guys have like chemistry in spades. Those two two actors where it's like, whereas in, in in season two, it is a completely different, it is both different in goal, but it is also different as you say, because there just isn't that same chemistry. And it really makes me appreciate Colin Farrell as an actor though. Cause I'm like, man, you're doing, you're you're really like straddling like the line. Like it's like, you're playing this like, brooding internally destructive just like eroding person but then when you're put into a scene with another person you're you come up for it and you're entertaining and you you don't belie the character that you are but you still manage to like deliver mm-hmm. deliver your lines as to a way that i find affection for you so it makes me really appreciate him as an actor i no, i agree so jake what was your overall res- sort of response to this episode uh it's probably pretty similar to what you guys are saying i mean i still i'm probably gonna be bummed out a little bit about this season forever because of the way that it got started like where where like you were saying about the first half of this episode of sort of just being mm-hmm. exposition land setup land and then it finally gets kicked off the hardest like you said i think for me was the scene with man i said we should remember the names and i don't remember the names with ray the, which character with ray annie. and and annie in the car those those two Paul. characters Huh? And, and Paul's listing. And really Paul, yeah. Here. But yeah. the two of them talking, and she says, you know, like, if we're going to really, if we're really going to share, like, how crooked are you or whatever, she basically asks him, mm. and then he just ends the how conversation. Compromised are you, yeah, yeah, how compromised are you? But that, that conversation was like what I hope is kind of the meat of the way that the characters mm-hmm. work, but I still wish they could have basically cut most of the first episode out of the show because I feel like Same. we almost got all we needed from what you see in this episode this episode so like last yeah. episode i was just wondering what is happening what's going on with all this but not in a way that was satisfying and in this episode it was still overwhelming but your takeaway is oh these three people who are in this investigation are pawns of a way bigger more disastrous thing than their already disastrous lives like that's like you mm-hmm. learn all of that this week in a way that i thought like just hooked up so much better 
and and with I think better delivery pieces like I the uh, whoever uh, the the uh, the mayor character you know I thought for just for instance who Frank Semyon goes to see I thought was just played deliciously in this oh right. just totally corrupt like sinking into his chair yeah, like his, I run I this just, town I was just gonna say, his posture is just so yeah. just. A bad man's posture. Including, <laughs> including a hilarious, like, slightly blurred, out-of-focus, like, photo with Bush behind him the whole time. It was just, like, a really amusing touch that I, I appreciated. Um, I, Yeah, it's funny because it felt like episode one was, like, a band that just was open for by another band that just tore the house down. And then, like, they're like, we're going to come on stage and do the same kind of thing. And then being like, okay, never mind. Actually, we'll just play the thing we know to do. And mm-hmm. it, it ends up being a much more enjoyable experience. Like, yeah, episode one felt like... You probably like, could have combined episodes one and two, cut out about, you know, half yeah, of that total material and made it much It felt like open. it owed something to the audience vis-a-vis the success of season one. You know what I mean? It was like, well, if you came here for season one, we better give you some of that stuff. But, like, it's clearly just not necessary yeah. in terms of like, one of the one of the things i read that was someone's speculation and it's, it's impossible to know probably will will be impossible to know until in retrospect when we read all encompassing pieces about the production of this season um someone speculated that season one obviously written 100 percent by nick pizzolato as is this season um but because of the continuity of direction uh season one really was sort of adopted by its director carrie is fujinaka I always, I, yeah. I always forget the the order of the syllables in his name. But um, uh, whereas here, the speculation was season two is much more of a, a writer's season, you know, or Pizzolatto mm-hmm. is really go, like taking on this kind of pulp ambition and these complex interlocking storylines and characters. And it may be the case that, he, you know, he, he just as a, a writer and with season one being his first time, uh, Sean, as you pointed out last week, as a produ- uh, as a produced television project, um, he may just have less of a firm hand on this whole thing. You know, yeah. I mean, I think the fact that that this is a sort of rotating stable of directors this time around, uh, my, my speculation last week, and I think I still think this is probably the case, is that Pizzolatto is taking a firmer hand on the whole thing as kind of combination showrunner writer right. like creative vision holder um and you know that 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 may just mean it's taking a little longer to find its footing i agree with that i feel like the disciplines of season one were broken up in such a way that really allowed um direction to be the star because yeah so much of the framing device of season one was russ and Russ and uh, marty in the um in those interviews yeah. in those rooms mm-hmm. so in those moments it's just nick puts a lot of script and these actors doing what they do you know mm-hmm. put the ca- set the camera up you know it means people and, don't actually need to talk as much during the rest of right, the, show. And the rest of it exactly. is not a writer's show it feels much like a very much a director's mm-hmm. show and yep. i thought that was a really great mix but here it just feels like it, this is a writer's show now and right. i'm okay with that i'm officially okay with that i don't think it's bad like mm-hmm. i was really hard on the season last last week but i just think it was because it was trying to find its footing, which is weird when you've already shot the episodes together. It's not like you're going to sure. spend three years trying to figure out your voice. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it just felt like it was nice to see the show not be so concerned with the milieu of true detective of season one and just be mm-hmm. pulp. I agree. Um, I really love all the, I mean, like, there's so many bits of modern pulp that I like. Um, and, uh, 
I'm, I'm happy to see that it's just like in that tradition now. Mm-hmm. I do still find myself wishing that there was a second owner on this show because I feel like we it got some momentum at the end of this, but we we went through an episode and a half of everyone saying twenty percent too much, yeah, basically, and like hopefully that doesn't. They said uh, so much. Hopefully that doesn't continue. But like, <laughs> it's even, so weird. Even in this, just there, when there's the, the big review board scenes early in the episode, and then it would mm-hmm. cut to flashbacks of each of the characters getting their assignments and stuff. It was just like, everyone just needs to stop talking because we can understand it. Mm-hmm. And that is the, is often the benefit of a strong director is they'll know, I can just show this. I don't, I don't need to mm-hmm. leave this, read this line of dialogue because it's just self-evident. And if you have a writer first, who's not used to that sort of self-censorship, you're going to run into that problem. But I mean, so I guess all we can do, like you guys said, is just yeah. hope that it becomes self-evident over the course of production yeah. because I no think, director is going to say no to course. Nick Pizzolatti or right. Pizzolatto on this show. Yeah. I think it'll be, it's a combination of, I think, taking the show on its own terms and then just seeing where they where they go with that with that stuff. It's like, um, other than the Paul character, I was surprised how much <laughs> uh, Annie and Ray said to each other are said about themselves to other people in this episode because like there's sort of like these sort of like brooding self-destructive types but then like just casually yeah they had five kids one of them became a cop says annie to this you know to that weird mm-hmm. surgeon guy yeah. you know and like they just talked so much We're about therapists. themselves the therapist yeah. yeah um they talked so much about themselves that i thought it was like really i was fine with it but i thought i did find it peculiar like yeah. ray is sort of like sort of backed up the dump truck and told her a bunch of like implicit things about his life i that the the, in particular with ray i i actually totally bought that right i'm not saying i didn't buy it no no, i know i know i'm just saying since you raise it like um because i think he i think his story is going to be (laughs) i guess we'll see how long his story continues actually after the end of this i think he's probably not dead but i don't uh, think he's dead at all yeah there's zero percent chance yeah but um but i i like that he I think it's a good arc that he is a character who is so fully irredeemable. I like that he is not the sort of lovable rogue. You know, he's not the oh, sort right, of right, like right, right, yeah. misanthrope you love to hate to love still. Like, you know, I I like that he is just a shit and wants to claw himself out of that, but is so in the pit of of just feces that it doesn't even seem clear that it's possible. You know, I mean, like, because what does he gain out of any of it? Like, there, there is nothing for him to be redeemed back into. Yeah. His son, who is the only thing he cares about, probably not even actually his son. Right. You know, like, it, and I, I kind of appreciate how bleak that is on television because you just really don't see that that often. I mean, I love, I mean, we all loved true detective season one. I, I certainly loved it, but it, you know, one of the things that kind of nodded me a little bit was, was how much, for instance, th- you know, I mentioned this last week, the Russ Cole character is portrayed as being, uh, such sort of a, a broken dismal person, but like we, as the audience are still always meant to sympathize, sympathize with him and sort of like put ourselves into his experience. Um, in a, in a positive way. Well, yeah. True detective presents as being about sort of broken, dysfunctional people, but secretly, I think the sort of like chemical reaction reason in your brain that you're watching it is because it's like a lot of shows. It's a show about watching people who are good at their job, doing their job. Yeah. Well. Or it's like watching drive or something where, it's, yeah. you know, where it's like you, sort of the, the badass version of the dark right. twisted person. It's like all in or whatever. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I think one of the weird, 
one of the things that is tough to get into about this season is that there is just absolutely so much going on and they talk so much about all of it. But I think one of the positives there is that since the entire show doesn't have to rest on, for instance, one like buddy cop relationship, um, there there's less pressure to make like one relationship, the sort of redeemed one, right. you know, because you have to live with it the whole time. But there's actually a lot to live with here. And it's probably no accident that Frank Semyon, at least um, to, to my viewing so far, you know, the, the sort of um, criminal character is one of the more sympathetic characters on the show, right. even though he too is <laughs> he too is a shit and is, in fact, the, the currently the most um, significant force in keeping Ray Volcoro down in the feces pit, you know, and like suppressing any of his attempts to claw his way out. Uh, but I, but I, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm bought into these characters at this point. Yeah, me too. Um, really quickly, do you guys want to talk about any sort of, uh, project, uh, thoughts about the ending? I didn't think you would like it. Oh yeah. Why is that? Because this was my theory mm-hmm. was one there. If they kill Colin Farrell, mm-hmm that you would find that cheap and unearned. I kind of would at this point. Right. But I don't think that's what's going to But if they bring him back, mm-hmm. you t- would also find that sort of cheap and uh like uh I don't know, like inelegant. Mm-hmm. You would find that to be sort of schlocky. Sure. Like if it turns out he's got shot twice with rock salt and with, out, right or like gonna, rubber bullets or something. Yeah. yeah. That guy's going to leave. Yeah. Yeah. Or he's um, wearing a vest. <laughs> he's wearing a I kind of he just got shot right in the middle of the chest. My assumption is just that he was wearing a vest and was shot with non-lethal ammunition. But but I don't but I don't know. Um, Yeah, I one of the I could be I I could have misinterpreted this. But do you guys remember when they were when they were doing the um, autopsy of of Casper the the you know oh my god tortured mutilated city manager and well I mean yes (laughs) yeah I remember it very I know but I'm just I was eating at the time okay I was I was was literally having general Tso's chicken yes we we were also literally putting dinner in our mouths when that happened yeah yeah um and um (laughs) they he all these things were done to him you know he was tortured he was hung upside down he was uh, bound he was shot with a shotgun apparently but the thing that killed him was a heart attack. And I thought it was interesting that it wasn't like, does that mean his corpse was shot afterwards with a shotgun or does that mean he was also shot with some kind of non-lethal? He was shot in the genitals, right? Yes. So like (laughs) very clearly. That's not going to kill you. Yeah, I suppose suppose that's true. Quickly at least. It'll kill you eventually. Yeah, that's fair enough. So I I probably went down the wrong mental path with that. Yeah. um, It looked pretty lethal to me. Like had that been a foot and a half You mean the feral... Oh no! You mean okay? I no, I mean yeah, yeah, when yeah, yeah. You're sh- they showed his body yes, and yes, cut yes. to the wound. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The the end of the the just the scene where where like Casper's second house. Oh, so good. That was the most like you said. It felt like they had to sort of give people the some of the true detective stuff in the first episode. I don't know if that's if I agree with that entirely. In part because this that that second house, everything about that was the most aesthetically like capital T capital D true detective thing that has shown up in the show so far that like strange padded room weird wispy animal masks like really weird lighting and then just an insane non-human figure coming out yeah. of the shadows and shooting someone like that was just that was actually one of the I that mean, was like that was just you we know. totally we haven't been super charitable to justin lynn's direction so far but i mean just as a tiny 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 little moment the first shot of the 
shotgun bearing figure mm-hmm. in mirror. that house. Yeah, I thought was yeah. so good because the door just opens the up. Little and the little taste full, of that was yeah. like yeah. very sinister and very distressing. Well, I also I think the direction of that scene was very good. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like they showed just enough of the bonkers, like uh, set set dressing and costuming for yeah. that scene to play perfectly. Because if they shown more of either, I feel like it would have come across as like. Nee. Yeah, that house is very weird looking. The implication, though, I guess, is that it was all filled in acoustic baffling foam. Like, what what happens inside of it is just inaudible to the outside world. Is that correct? Because it looks like it looked like a padded cell or something. But if you look right. close, it is just acoustic foam. And then they cut to the outside of the house, and you just hear nothing. Yeah, it didn't really. We- it's for me. I thought it was. This is maybe like a way too big of an assumption. But I thought it was just like a classic Hollywood Hills musicians' home. So oh, like, okay, that probably is probably you know correct. I mean? Like, yeah. I thought, like Could be. I've it been to just, a, we're just houses like that where that it's like, oh yeah, just, you guys just play a standing music studio. in here and your neighbors yeah. are okay. assholes. Yeah, yeah. So like, but maybe not. Maybe some nefarious, loud shits going on in there. Well, there was a there was a, <laughs> at least I mean, an attempted murder. Something's going on that people want to have a record of because there was that camera that was. Apparently still running. Yeah, because it went it did the, it did the like auto, a camera did an autofocus like then, buzz and then on it him. Panned over to a hard drive with a light on that I assumed was cap was like yeah. where the video was being stored. And I really want to know if the shotgun assault was captured on on video. Um, I I like that that was teased mm-hmm. at there. Um, so one thing actually, because we're talking about one of Casper's houses, uh, I want to quickly mention a hilarious tidbit about the his other house in season in, i'm sorry in episode one oh you're talking about the milk art yeah that, you mean that dildo the woman, house? <laughs> the, yeah, the woman house. floating in the milk in the thing where they where they where they go in and they're like you see that you've seen that too yeah yeah that isn't that, so i saw a lot of people suspect that this was maybe the moment when true detective like veers into lynchian um supernatural or sort of like representative you know psychosis stuff but uh no this is that is actually a real artwork that exists in the world, which is some kind of crazy hologram projection in a bowl of liquid. That is, it's an actual work. It's like a piece of video installation art, yeah. basically. Wow! You can. Yeah. It's amazing so, that, it, that it that it photographs so well, that it looks so good. Well, on there's film. A, you can watch a video of it on on Vimeo. Yeah, I'm just surprised it looks so how crisp and surreal yeah. it looked on. on yeah, film. that's how the video the the video on Vimeo looks as well. It just looks like that shot from True Detective because yeah. it is just that. I want to see it in real life. Do you guys want to talk about the um, city? of the city of Vinci at all? Because we got some reader mail uh, or listener mail about that. Yeah, I mean we can. I yeah. Know, um, or do you want to just wait? You want to jump? No, we can talk. about I it. I think we can just we can mention we can it so jump that jump into reader mail via that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Let's uh, sure. Well, you know, first actually, I want to uh, source the this milk thing so that people can 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 look it up if they want. Uh, this is uh, an installation art called. White Water by Peter Sarkeesian. That's White Water, two words, not not one word. Uh, and there's a video of it online that you you can just see it looping, and it's a weird, crazy looking thing. And uh, I I like that that I I really, in retrospect, like that a lot. I mean, I liked it at the time because it was just weird. They run into a piece of like weird postmodern fine art and just go yeah, because it, it fits in the milieu of this world, which yeah. is just generally unsettling. And well, and also clearly, Casper is some sort of collector of weird, expensive erotic ephemera. It seems mm-hmm. like so exactly, he would be the person yeah. who I guess would have bought this piece at a show, right. and the sort of class of person who can afford to. <laughs> I must have this nude woman in milk virtual <laughs> yeah. projection. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he also had the uh, the Tupac 
projection as well from Coachella. <laughs> he only collects holograms. <laughs> in the other room. Yeah. They just said they cut that. <laughs> it was just... Yeah, he has a copy of the Sega arcade game <laughs> yeah. Time Traveler. He's got yeah. They got a whole scene where Tupac sings "Still Ballin" while they're searching the apartment. <laughs> the hologram Tupac letters. Anyway, strange. It's very strange. Yeah, Justin Lin is a iconoclast. He's got that weird animated, uh, like non-existent anime pop star from Japan. That's another classic hologram. Oh, really? Yeah. Whatever. Let's not talk about holograms anymore. Until until another hologram appears, like in episode six of True Detective, and then we know the holograms are the former voice of Gem and the Holograms is the main character. Uh, Stop. I'm just waiting for Chris to find reader mail somewhere. This is what we call fill in time podcast <laughs> listeners. This is called well, patter. Do, do you guys want to talk about, about Vernon at all? Oh, Vernon, California. The, the actual yeah, yeah. Um So Yeah, sure. I mean we can talk about it pretty briefly. So we you know, we talked last week questioning why um, Sean particularly questioning why Vinci, the fictional town at the center of, uh, of True Detective Season 2, was in fact a fictional town and not set in a real place that Especially exists on the map. This, when that area is so rife with cities like this. Yeah. yeah. The one you're about to describe. As it is, right. Well, and Jake, wherever. you pointed out that in, for example, Chandler and... Uh, it sounds like Dashiell Hammett does it too, ha- although I've never yeah, read any Hammett as well. Hammett. Uh, in their kind of Seems Southern California, you know, California noir, um, use the same approach. So... Anyway, there is an actual city in this exact area of Southern California outside of L.A. called Vernon, which is also uh, an industrial town with an incredibly low official population, you know, like sub 100 residents um, that exists just as an industrial town and also is completely rife with corruption. And also uh, who several years ago, a, a, a city employee turned up, in this case, dead in San Francisco Bay. Um, the circumstances of the death were different, and I think was officially, in that case, um, was, you know, was was less sinister than this, but a lot of people, you know, made an attempt their, to connect dots. Their brains between. jumped immediately to its corruption and Yeah, it, exactly. And so I think the reason that... The milk hologram in the guy's apartment. <laughs> I think the reason that this was, that, that Pizzolatto's created a fictional city for this is because he clearly obviously was directly inspired by those events, but didn't want to have to fictionalize an actual thing that he was then bound to representing the facts of. He sort Mm -hmm. of said, wow, this is a crazy overall story and dynamic. It does make it entirely a sort of modern Chandler thing though, too, because like Mm -hmm. corruption in Southern California in the thirties was always abstracted in the exact way where like these, the cities in Chandler are not, amalgamations they're just replacements where he doesn't want to use the name and doesn't want to talk about actual law enforcement right. and stuff like that mm-hmm. we mentioned those books a lot <clears throat> but um if you've never read any raymond chandler you should pick up uh any of them yeah the long goodbye is sort of like his like big like seminal work the one that's sort of like his big emotional piece but um there's sort of like smaller less ambitious um you could read you could read the big sleep or or like Lady in the Mirror, Lady in the Mirror, Mirror, Lady in the Lake, or something. Yep. Um, all yep. very good books. Yep. Really, really good. Like great summer reads. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. All right. So, uh, you want to do some reader mail here? Would love to do uh, some reader mail from you, the readers. And if you have any questions you'd like us to answer, or just thoughts on the episode of, or thoughts on the podcast, please send them in. Chris, what is that wonderful email address they should send them to? Questions at truedetectiveweekly.com. 
Uh, so our first email comes from Stratton Campbell, and it is, uh, it's relevant to what we were just talking strong about. Strong name, Stratton Campbell. It's true. It is a strong name. So uh, Stratton writes, hey, guys, uh, I share the same opinions for the most part you guys do about the first episode, but I wanted to address the locations discussion in the first part of the podcast. I don't know if you guys watched Sons of Anarchy. In that series, it's set in Charming, a fictional town between Oakland and Stockton. I never felt the need to justify where exactly it was, and I felt the same about Vinci. It's not an analog for L.A. or even a suburb. In my opinion, it's a city set north of L.A. near near Bakersfield in the middle of the planned corridor development. It seemed clear from the scenic shots and discussions. What I don't get, however, is the proximity to the ocean and that being the focal point at the end when Casper was found and true drunk, de- drunk detectives able to drive that far. I think the rest of the season will cover most of this, considering Vince Vaughn's storyline especially. It's a, just a very different premise from season one, where it was simply rural Louisiana. Cities and towns were never a focal point. Best regards, Stratton. And then he actually follows up. He says, just to follow up to my previous email, after a second viewing, uh, I was very mistaken. It's definitely a spot-on version of Vernon, uh, even the places it's filmed, like the house beside the police department. It's a very small city of over 1,000 people, but over 50,000 during the workday. The history of Vernon is very much built on corruption as well, if you do a quick Wikipedia search. This all makes sense, especially when the first season was based on an actual case very similar to the fictional one. So um, we got other emails along those lines, but I just wanted to read one of them too as sort of a representative uh, case. Uh, Andy Yingst writes, Hey guys, the thing I keep thinking about this show is how it defies the normal rules of TV mysteries. Hearing about the show when it ran, I more or less expected it to be in the legacy of Twin Peaks, in which we have a cast of characters we learn more and more about, with suspicion shifting between them until a finale when the culprit is revealed. The killing, Veronica Mars, and Top of the Lake are all more or less in this genre. I think this category is mostly an adaptation of the Agatha Christie-type mystery, which traditionally ends in the big parlor room scene with the detective announcing how they figured it out. Usually there's a moment where you could put the story down and try to figure out the puzzle and then go back to keep reading and see if you got it right. In my head, most older campy TV mysteries are in this vein. Your murder she wrote and your diagnosis murder and so on. This doesn't seem to fit for True Detective. The episode-by-episode work of True Detective feels more procedural, like a law and order or a homicide life on the streets, where the meat of the work is in tax records or subpoenas or wiretaps. There isn't a big aha moment, just the doing of the legwork. Except that in True Detective, there is a big aha moment in the end. The green ears in the painted house were clues available to the audience to notice from early in the show as well as an appearance of the killer. So I have no idea what the show is, I guess. Maybe it's just the first show to try and take a single procedural type of mystery and stretch it out over an entire TV season. And maybe the flashback structure was an attempt to support, was in support of a mystery that takes a long time to solve. This attempt at categorization seems to get completely thrown out the window for season two, which so far seems may not be a mystery at all. Like the investigation appears to be about a corpse found on the side of the road, but we already know who killed him, right? Do we? Do we know that? No, we don't. I don't think we do. Uh, so is this maybe a what col- if you do please write us in at questions at true detective <laughs> dot com. I wonder who this guy thinks the killer is. Reagan's killed him. P.S. You guys mentioned the title of the show and how it evoked true crime fiction. When I heard the title, it mostly struck me. This was another show from the network that already produces real sports, real sex, true blood and real talk. <laughs> <laughs> do not question HBO's veracity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, strong observation. Yep. Very good. Yep. <laughs> so uh gordon writes hey thumbs really enjoying the podcast so far i agreed with the general sentiment around episode one and that a ton of exposition and setup was crammed into an hour time slot what i did find interesting was the subtle vibe of lynchian pieces that were scattered throughout the episode i noticed when ray Valcoro meets with frank Semyon to discuss the man who raped Valcoro's wife the wi- windows are covered with red curtains and the room glows with red light it's Perhaps an indication Ray is about to make a literal deal with the devil, but the choice of decor brings the Red Room of Twin Peaks and its sinister atmosphere to mind. Later, we see Frank at his house, which is either the Stall House, he links to a Wikipedia article about something called the Stall House, or one very reminiscent of the case study houses in L.A. 
This house is used in a party scene in Lynch's Mulholland Drive, where a main character's dream is flaunted and crushed in front of her. Semyon seems similarly anxious about his own dream of Central Californian Rail Line, which, while we don't see it crushed, we do see stymied by the missing city manager at the elaborate party. Well, we know now that that was further crushed, in fact. The scene where Ray Valcoro puts on the ski mask and shushes the camera, in addition to being super creepy, uh, smacks of Lynch to me as well. We're shown immediately that he's shushing an addict on the side of the road, but it's hard to shake the feeling that Valcaro is shushing us, the audience, and in the process somehow involving us in the following violence. It brings to mind the end of Mulholland Drive, the final scene of the whispered silencio. The manager's house is filled with strange and dreamlike sexual imagery, like a statue of a phallus with legs or a painting of a woman's torso with no head, but instead a tangle of legs and arms lounging on a bed. Finally, the scene in the bar in which Frank's, Frank pays Ray for assaulting the investigative journalist is all the trappings of any roadhouse or show club from Lynch's work. A locale where the majority of the visuals are long character shots under the loud diegetic music of a female musician whose song encapsulates the mood of the episode. To boot, the camera makes sure we meet the friendly waitress with a facial scar. No direct correlation, but Lynch's work is no stranger to the showcase of physical alteration and deformity. The Elephant Man, Eraserhead, Twin Peaks, to suggest an inner conflict. Anyway, those were some things I no- noticed that reminded me of Lynch's style. Here's hoping the season figures itself out and we see more references of this kind. Best, Gordon. I think that stuff is is probably more interesting, you know, to sort of like try and tease out as a viewer than it is necessarily reflective of intentional reference in all cases. But it's definitely like interesting to slot in that overall milieu of kind of weird, especially Southern California, pseudo surreal uh, mystery stuff. Do you guys like Mulholland Drive? I do. I haven't seen it in a long time. I need, college, I yeah. need to watch it again. Now, especially having, you know, Jake and I did that whole Twin Peaks rewatch podcast where we watched the entire thing and, and uh, the movie Firewalk with me as well. And I feel like I would probably get more into different things out of Mulholland Drive yeah. now. I remember really liking it when I saw it, but it's been years. Like, it's, Lynch for me is incredibly hit or miss, but Mulholland Drive really hit pretty hard for me. I like that movie a lot. I really hope that bird mask comes back. <laughs> I'm sure, or one of those that's other my, masks. There's I think all kinds that's of probably my 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 deepest bit of analytical. Uh, you know that bird mask comes back because because it's true detective. That that's like I hope it was Reagan in that bird mask. Do you think that? Do you think that the I mean, Taylor Paul. Kitsch character Paul Woodred? Do you think yeah. that he is a closeted man? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I think he is. Uh, if not. Um, I don't know. I don't think it's as simple as that. Like he's a closeted homosexual, as it might be that he just has um, real hot, tough sexual identity issues that yeah. might um, just go back to like a pre whatever Black Mountain trauma. He's mm-hmm. definitely the victim of trauma. Yeah, I think we can all agree with that. One of the things which I, I like a lot. One of the things I I, think I, that, yeah. I like about this character, you know, we've talked about how much. Um, sorry for just diving back into the show, but I, no, we, we didn't talk about this character really at all. And I think how we dare sh- you break form? <laughs> I think we should because one of the things that we've been that has been a real through line of our reaction to both episode one and two is how much talking there is. But I think it's really worth pointing out how little this character talks, and yet how how sort of subtly and steadily all these things about his past have been seeded mm-hmm. into the show. You know, I mean, he took what I assume to be Viagra or something similar in the first episode so that he could have sex with his girlfriend. That was what I assume that we were meant right. to take from that anyway. And I was really, I was sort of confused in the first episode when he was accused of soliciting a blowjob to get this woman, uh, to get her, um, you know, speeding ticket or whatever it was. Yeah, dismissed. Like ingenue, Except yeah. that in the scene, it's quite clear that she, propositions him not the other way around right. which makes me think when you combine this with his sort of scornful story about getting hit on by some guy in a bar 
he clearly is like playing this stuff up to make it seem as though he's he is you know offended by homosexuality he's the one who wants the blowjob instead right. of the other way around um even if it comes at like professional harm to himself uh-huh. he clearly has this insecurity that he needs to combat very publicly you know and then he tells his girlfriend who basically breaks up with him because because of his aloofness he's gonna go work and all he does is go back to his apartment and you know watch some uh like you know i potentially like male prostitute or something get out of a car and kind of work a corner mm-hmm. and you know i mean i i like how i like how how slowly that's been doled out and how quietly mm-hmm. um i think it's a, it's a yeah, nice it'd be touch. really easy to play that quiet brooding like like i was in a program whatever mm-hmm. like character as a hyper macho macho alcoholic whereas what we're seeing from him is like sexually conflicted and just damaged and i think it's mm-hmm. like when i say like i like that which is kind of what i said i no, just i really I, appreciate no, it as lasciviously as possible yeah i just really i love to see just broken individuals i like i really <laughs> respect how well rendered that is i agree then. yeah also last for some reason i don't know why i went i this was my first thought last last week last week when black mountain came up a couple of times for some reason i kind of assumed it was going to be some kind of weird border militia you know like military you, contracting sort of thing like well no blackwater. i i originally now that's what i assume it is i assume it's a blackwater oh, okay. you know like military contractor for some reason last week i thought maybe it was some kind of weird like um you guys you know those like militia yeah, like guys Minutemen who Minutemen, yeah who go you know to the that he was like somehow it. recruited up out of that or something yeah because because didn't he say <laughs> at some point like we're fighting we were fighting for liberty or something and it sounded like yeah. You know that, but I think yeah, it's probably actually a Blackwater military contractor kind of thing. Probably he's really contractor. scarred, or right? he's really injured. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, they didn't revisit that this week. But. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, I wanted to touch on that character because we kind of, I think we kind of glossed over him a little bit. Um, yeah. When's Annie going to stab somebody? <laughs> <laughs> under True. she's got uh, over under uh, over under episode four. You go over or under. She I'm gonna go, all those knives. I'm gonna go over on that. Okay, Jake, you want the under? Are you? What do you think? Actually, <sighs> when is she gonna stab somebody? I hope it's at least episode four. You want it to be more than that. Like if she stabs somebody in episode three, you'll be disappointed. If you if she says or it's like, why do you carry these knives? I'll tell you so that next week I've set it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, opinions. But whatever, it's fine. She was very clear about why she carries those knives. I guess. She yeah. really wanted to express it in as many sentences did as you, possible. Are you, are you opening the episode of the clip? Yeah, that's where that's the plan. Can I suggest one? Sure. Can I suggest the Ray Velcoro? Uh, I'm a feminist. I'm a feminist because yeah. I have mm-hmm. body image yeah, issues. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I support feminism that's mainly feminism. through body image issues. Yeah. That was such a good line. Uh, did you guys find it really weird to see vaping elect- e- e-cigarettes on television? That was so strange to me. Uh, I think I've seen it somewhere else. Oh, really? But it wasn't. I thought it was well. I think it's well done. No, I did too. Yeah. It was just I like, I it like, was it like in there. jarring, just because generally speaking, cigarettes in film and television are used to make a character look cool, not for that, that is generally speaking. Even if they're not to be not to underscore that they're addicted to a thing that's killing them. Exactly. That is <laughs> right. Usually, it's like they're shot in a stylish way. And, you know, like it's that is usually the function of smoking in film and television. And I and I it was so funny to see a character using this kind of goofy looking tool, you know, I mean, which, you know, Velcro refers to as a robot dick, basically. (laughs) 
<laughs> he says she makes it look cool, though, before then immediately calling it a robot yeah. dick. Uh, but it doesn't look cool. No, it doesn't. It looks it looks absolutely not. I think he cool. says you pull it off. You pull it off. That's yeah. the yeah. language. It doesn't yeah. say make it look yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, it was just. I mean, this isn't really. I don't know if any, if a show could have changed my reaction to it. It just looked so surprising to me because I I don't know if I'd seen it in fictional television before, despite being something that has completely exploded in popularity over the last few years in reality. Anyway, that was an odd thing to see. Right, because up until that moment. I mean, people have cell phones and things like that, but like cell phones have been so ubiquitous now for right. 15 years that mm-hmm. we're in, the, we're finally in the era of if people have cell phones and there's technology, it can still be relatively timeless. Yeah. But like the e-cig is so yeah, we're like, not sure yet. a la mode. <laughs> so yeah, it's so like of the moment that like, it's just, oh, well this is now. Yeah. Or it's like we've had laptops for two yeah, decades. You know we've I mean? had iPods for 15 years. Even smartphones are coming up on a decade old, but right. That vaping. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's today. <laughs> well, on that note, you guys want to call this? Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. So um, you can send us questions or comments. If you have any, uh, we're probably, I'm guessing based on, on the speed at which email comes in, we're probably going to be lagging about a week behind on, on listener mail just because people probably will take a couple days to send their thoughts in. But if you do have any thoughts about episode two before we record uh, episode three, or if you manage to get your emails in about episode three quickly, uh, I would I would love to feature those on the show. So you can send those in to questions at truedetectiveweekly.com. Um, we, our website is truedetectiveweekly.com, unsurprisingly. Uh, we're on Twitter at Detective Weekly. We have a Facebook page if you search for True Detective Weekly. If you've been enjoying our show, uh, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. That is the main way that people find out about the show when they search for True Detective-related podcasts. Uh, It means a lot to us, and it helps us out a lot. And um, we're part of the Idle Thumbs podcast network. We have a number of shows on various topics, including uh, video games, television. Um, You can find those at idlethumbs.net. And thanks for listening. We will be back next week with episode three. Thanks, guys. I think it's clear who the killer is because the killer is obviously uh, the king in yellow. (laughs) Thanks.